backtracking a little bit, for those of you that are guests with us this morning, what a joy to have you here. Um, thank you for blessing us with your presence. For those of you that are periodic visitors, we love being the second home to a whole bunch of people. And for those who uh, this is your church home, thanks for gathering together. The journey would not be the same without you. Um, this past month, we've been following on a course of study that's been looking at the steps of Jesus and trying to learn what we can about discipleship. I've confessed several times, but I mention it again in case anybody recoils at me saying that that's what we're digging into these months as we lead up to Easter. Um, I have a bit of that recoil. Some of you may not, and there's nothing wrong with the word discipleship, but I have found that in my life's journey there have been numerous times where I have felt like it has moved me to places of shame and failure that wasn't very productive. And I am not wanting to do that through this course of time. Um, And it comes from not living up to what I think are some of the expectations that are placed out there when somebody begins to talk about discipleship. Uh, I... I can't tell you the number of Bible reading plans that I have started. And they soon, either I fell behind and then seven days later I had tried to catch up by reading all of the previous days that I missed. And then it became too overwhelming and it ended and I thought, oh, there that goes again. Well, maybe I'll try it one more time. I'll confess, and I I say this knowing that there are people here who have done what I'm about to confess I haven't done, and God bless you, I know that there's great benefit to it, and it's fantastic if you choose to read the Bible straight through once a year, once every couple of years, where you just start at the beginning and move to the end. I've never done that. Whew, there I said it. And I'm really nervous that period of awkward silence that all of you judged me in that moment. But I've never done that. It's not been, um, I, I someday might. And if you have, fantastic, because I've heard of so many wonderful stories of people have made that part of their discipline. Um, I have fallen asleep while I've been praying. Just sounds so unspiritual. And I just feel like I am rehearsing the words of Jesus as he comes back from being in agony, looks at his disciples and say, couldn't you just stay awake one hour? No, God, I'm so sorry. It's really tired. I get the disciples in that moment. So all I'm saying is that this is not an attempt to try and shame you into anything, but instead in discipleship. We are talking about discovering Jesus. Just a fresh look at the things Jesus might be doing and saying that might then teach us who we are, followed by who might we be in Christ. The desire is that there might be something here that whets your appetite, that draws you into doing some of those things that you begin to long for, not be guilted into doing some things because somehow you think that will 
somehow put a smile on God's face and give you approval that God has already smiled upon you and said, you're mine. My child, I love you and I'm proud of you. So that's where we are in this journey as we look at this uh, process of what it means to follow Jesus' footsteps and learn from it. This passage is actually a little bit of uh, backtracing. The sequence of readings takes us to the temptation of Christ, but chronologically we've already moved on a little bit. We've had the experience that he had in his hometown in Nazareth. We've gone to Capernaum and watched the catch of all of the fish that took place. Now we're kind of going back chronologically to what happened to Jesus right as Jesus came out of the baptism that happened where John baptized Jesus and the heavens opened up and said those words I said a few moments ago over Jesus. And it says at the end of that story that Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then we have the temptations. These temptations are mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're looking at the Luke passage. The Matthew one is very similar, and it's in a similar place in that book. It's Matthew chapter 4, right at the beginning of the chapter. And it looks very similar to this. Some different pieces are highlighted, but it's the same story. Mark does a very abbreviated rendition of this. Mark chapter 1, verse 13, he simply says, And Jesus was led into the desert, and there he was tempted. End of story. So if we were going to study that version, we'd be done real fast. We've got a few more things we have to do because we're in Luke's gospel right now. And Luke tells us what the temptations are. Now, I know that Scripture tells us that Jesus has been tempted in all ways as we are tempted. And one of the beautiful things that comes out of that Scripture reference is this connection we have with Christ that Christ knows us so well because of the ways in which Christ in all of Jesus' humanity lived life and was tempted like we are. But then there feels like a real disconnect between that statement and this passage. Here's why it feels that way to me. It may not to you. But I look at these temptations and none of them make my top ten list. I have never, ever been tempted to look at rocks and say, turn into bread. That's just never... And I've been hungry sometimes. That's not my temptation in those moments. I have never been tempted, at least in an overt, direct way, to kneel before Satan and worship Satan. There are certainly some things that I do that indicate my lack of worship to God, but that's not been something that's been a problem in my journey. And I have never gone up to the highest point on our buildings and been tempted to throw myself off and see what happens. So none of these make my top ten list of temptations that come in my life's journey, and it feels like it's a pretty significant disconnect in asking the question, so what do these temptations mean for me in following in the footsteps of Jesus? And what does it have to teach me in being a disciple, a follower of Christ? Well, I'd like to put just a couple paradigms 
lenses through which to look at this passage over it. I want to confess, they're my paradigms. The way in which you look at this passage may be different. I don't want to color scripture. I'm not attempting to do that at all. But it's the lens through which I look as I'm walking through this passage. One is the umbrella piece of the Holy Spirit. To me, this is a very important paradigm. It's easy to get lost just in the temptation and miss how crucial it is that Jesus left the baptismal scene filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit. It also says at the very end of this passage that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when I'm looking at the issues in my life that have to do with temptation, it'd be very easy for me to step into this and try and live in a place out of my own strength where I'm addressing the things in my life, living in my own spirit, in my own way, trying to do my own thing. Let's not miss this overarching piece of the storyline that Jesus is filled, led, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, even though the things in this storyline are really not the things that I would maybe think of when I think of, give us a teaching on temptation, Luke, or Jesus, give us some examples in your life, we do know that right out of this, Jesus, after the temptation, begins to teach in the synagogues, heal the sick, and um, preach the good news. And one of the very first sermons we hear is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the first third of that sermon, we find out that Jesus talks about the things we might expect Jesus to talk about. Don't murder, and don't hate, don't commit adultery, and let me talk to you about lusting. Here's what is the standard on divorce, and the oaths that you keep, and how you treat those who have slapped you in the face, and the issues related to an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, and what it means to pray for enemies. And at the end of this crescendo, it's almost like Jesus is is tightening the standards, raising the level, making it more difficult to where you're going, can anyone do this? He caps it off at the end of the first third of this message by saying, and be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, if I didn't give up before, that's the end of my trying. But those are Jesus' teaching to us. And once again, it's almost as if Jesus has raised the bar so high on the law that he's saying, and without the one that I am sending you, you can't do this. But I'm going to send you one, the counselor, the advocate. The world doesn't know him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. It's the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit. You know him because he lives with you and he lives in you. That's the promise from John chapter 14. So Jesus raises this bar almost as if to say, okay, now let me show you how this works. So Jesus, filled with the spirit, led by the spirit, empowered by the spirit. That's the umbrella. Second paradigm as we look at this. I'd like to look at this through the lens of idolatry. Now, I I know that 
I just said that I have never been really tempted overtly to bow down before Satan and worship in the hopes that I would have control of all of the kingdoms of the world. But idolatry is a huge issue. And it's a subtle issue. It's one of those things that can creep into our life and we didn't even realize what took place. So let me talk about these three temptations through that lens. The first one that happens is that Jesus has been hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. And um, that's beyond my comprehension, to be honest. I know that there are some. I know several who have fasted that long. I, that's, um, uh, I would love to hear some of the stories of those individuals and what they experienced. And here we have the story of one who had fasted for 40 days and at the end of 40 days was very hungry. There's a shift that takes place in the body where the body starts using the fats and then maybe a little bit of the muscle. When it starts using the muscle, you start shifting into the starvation phase and that's somewhere in the neighborhood of the 40-day mark is what I'm told. And so Jesus was very hungry. And here was what Satan said. You see these stones. Why don't you just turn them into bread and eat? Jesus' response was this. Man does not live by bread alone. That's the shortened version. It's just a snippet of a much longer passage of Scripture that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And in fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 is a shortened version of a larger story in Exodus where the people came out of Egypt from slavery. So it's really easy to miss the story behind the story behind the story. When you just get a little snippet. It reminds me of the story that probably most of you know. The gentleman who had to go to prison in the first night, he listened as there was some chatter and somebody would yell out a singular word like pumpernickel and everybody would crap up, would crack up laughing. Wow. <laughs> Edit the tape on that one. My goodness. Crack up laughing. And just like that, that was the end of the joke. Thank you so much. And somebody else would say folding chair, and they'd all laugh. And he didn't understand it. And so the next day he asked a friend, what's that all about? And he, not a friend, somebody in the prison. And he said, well, we all know the jokes. We just give the one line that reminds us all of what it is. And we laughed. And so that night he joined in and tried to participate, said pumpernickel, and it was just silent and Tried folding chair and crickets, nothing. And he asked the next day, and the guy said, well, some people just don't know how to tell a joke. <laughs> like me right now, which is the problem. So <laughs> that one line could have a whole story behind it, could have a story behind a story. So here we have Jesus saying, we do not live by bread alone. Matthew gives us a little bit more, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. But the longer story that takes us back past Deuteronomy to Exodus is that the people had been brought out of slavery into the desert. They were celebrating how great, we're free, and then within a day, it seems, from the storyline, having eaten all that they brought with them out of Egypt, all of a sudden realized, and there's no food out here. What in the world did you do to us, Moses? We're ready to go back. 
We were better off in Egypt. We at least knew where the food was coming from. We're going to die out here in the desert. I'd rather be a slave. That's what they said. Now, before we think that's ridiculous, how often do I do the same? Where the unknown of freedom makes me say, you know what? I think I'd prefer the chains of the known. Whatever my dysfunction is, at least I know what it is. And even if it doesn't produce good things, at least I know what it produces. I think I'd rather go back to that than be where I am, which is afraid of the unknown of what it means to be free. So Moses goes to God, and he's concerned as well. And God provides manna in the morning, quail at night, to feed them daily. It says in that passage in Deuteronomy 8.3 why God did this. God knew that their heart was not pure, that their heart was not given over to God. They were self-sufficient, maybe other-sufficient, but not God-dependent. That's idolatry. When I depend on my own ability to do my own thing to take care of my own needs without recognizing that the only reason I'm able to do that is because there's a God gracious enough to give me what I have to do that, I have moved into a place where I've worshipped the gift more than the gift giver. That's idolatry. And so Jesus is tempted, tempted to live in a place that's ruled by his own needs, and he has the power to do that. And I would confess, I do as well. I do it every day. I trade my stones of silver, copper, and paper money for bread every day. It's how I feed myself and my family. And it's very easy for me to say, and look what I did. I'll take care of myself. I... I, Whether you do or not, I'm just saying I think there is value before every meal and pausing long enough to say, oh God, this is from your hand. Help me to remain you dependent, not self-dependent, not self-sufficient. That's the first temptation to idolatry, it seems to me. We move on to the second temptation. This is the temptation where Satan says, I've been given all of the kingdoms of the world to give to whomever I decide, bow down and worship me, and I'll give them to you. So let me take you into a little bit of both what Satan is doing, Jesus' response, but let me preface it by saying this. I, I used to think, having read this, that the point of the whole story was that if I just memorized Scripture like Jesus memorized Scripture, I'd be able to overcome any and every temptation. So, I figured, give me, God, just a really good one that I can do battle with. And after having read a particular author, I landed on Romans chapter 6. That seemed like just a power-packed one that nobody, no temptation could stand up against What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means! We died to sin. How can we live it any longer? 
Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried together with him through baptism unto death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Come on, any temptation. I'll nail you with that scripture. Memorizing scripture is fantastic. It is beneficial. It makes a difference in your journey. It's not a magic wand for temptation. I mean, it does not all of a sudden quell all of the things that rise up and start playing havoc with your thought process. It's good. It's beneficial. Hiding the word in your heart. I encourage you to do that. But it's not some magic formula that makes temptation all of a sudden disappear. So one of the reasons that led me to realize is Satan's quote in Scripture in these temptations and probably knows it better than I do. So Satan tempts Jesus again. Jesus responds by saying, fear or worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He's drawing on this passage of Scripture that is in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. It actually begins with the Shema of the Jewish faith. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Worship God with your heart, your soul, and your strength. Write this down on the door frames of your home. If you need to, write it on your forehead so that you don't forget it. Talk about it when you're rising, when you're lying down, when you're sleeping, when you're walking along. Let this be your centerpiece. That's Deuteronomy chapter 4. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 13 speaks about that. This is how Jesus responds. But the context of this Deuteronomy passage is so important it's sometimes called the second giving of the law. We hear the law given in Exodus, but we're told the law again in Deuteronomy. It's repeated because in Deuteronomy, the people are about to enter into the promised land. They're about to take possession of this land flowing with milk and honey, this amazing place with wonderful cities, wonderful economic uh, growth, agriculturally, just fantastic. It's a place that will meet their needs. And Moses knows how important it is to spell out before the people again what God has done for them. Moses is doing what we contend is a value of our church, and that is that we walk backwards into our future. We rehearse the things that God has done for us beforehand because it gives us strength and courage to keep walking into the future because of how God has provided, we know God will continue to provide in the future. So Moses is rehearsing the things that have taken place and speaking about, in that context, what is to come. They're going to enter a land that has all kinds of wonderful things, but what it doesn't have is God at the center. 
It is not a God-fearing culture. It is a culture that would like to wrap all new inhabitants into its priorities and values and ways of thinking and doing life. So easy for the Israelites to be pulled away by those priorities when they step into this new land. And Moses speaks to them and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. What is it that you serve? Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Be reminded of the centerpiece of who we are. It will be the only thing that holds you steady and makes this promised land a true fulfillment of God's promise, not just a temporary fulfillment of God's promise. I had the privilege two days ago of listening to a wonderful speaker in our chapel just down the breezeway, Reverend Cho, who uh, pastors up in the Northwest area. He's written a wonderful book, and one of the things that arises out of his teaching has become a really important part of his congregation and in part of his life's journey is the notion that we are far more enamored with the idea of justice than we are of actually doing justice. It's a great line. And I would contend you could apply that to many other things in the Christian journey. That I am far more enamored and supportive of and enthusiastic about there being workers in the children's department and mid-high youth area than I am enamored by volunteering to participate in those areas. And that sounds so close to heaping on guilt and shame. So I'm just going to retract that statement right there. That was not my intent in that moment. (laughs) Because I know that people have different giftedness and different times in the ministries and commitments you make. So please, somehow, let that roll off if it needs to. But we are far more enamored with the idea of prayer than actually participating in the kind of introspection and work that's required of engaged relational prayer with God. It is possible even to generalize about Christianity and say we are far more enamored with the idea of Christianity than actually engaging in the work of being a follower of Jesus. didn't mean it to be quite that silent in that moment. Let me expand it even bigger than that. I think there are times, particularly in our culture, where we value and are enamored with good ideas, but are far less likely to actually participate in good ideas. I'd like to put it this way, and I want you to hear me up front, this is not scriptural quote. This is not taken from any chapter or verse, but I am borrowing some language from Scripture. That broad is the way and wide is the gate that is full of good ideas. And a lot of people walk through that gate, sometimes to their own peril. But narrow is the way and small is the gate of putting those good things into practice 
And few there be who find that joy and freedom in doing that. So Jesus is offered the temptation of accepting a culture's values, of justifying the means by what ends it will produce, of embracing the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus' response, hmm, Scripture says, worship God and serve God only. Because anything else is idolatry. Third temptation comes. Here's the temptation where Jesus is taken up to the high point of the temple in Jerusalem. The beautiful structure that was built. And encouraged to throw himself off of the temple because there's a passage that says, and the angels will bear you up so that you won't dash your foot against a stone. I was on top of our buildings early this morning. I was not tempted at all to jump off. It had something to do with a furnace that I needed to check out. But I thought of this passage and how it fits in terms of idolatry. Here I find the temptation not to worship my own self-sufficiency, not to worship the gods given to me by my culture, but to confess I love and believe in God, but to be tempted by the idolatry of a God of my own creation. That God needs to act like I think God needs to act on a time frame that I think God needs to acknowledge, to do God-like things like I think God ought to do God-like things. To test God, as Jesus is tempted to do, to throw himself off to the temple. Well, what if God doesn't fit into my way of the my concept of the way I think God ought to act? What if, what if God doesn't do it in my timing that I think is so essential? That idolatry is this incredible temptation to create a God that serves me instead of a God whom I serve. A God made in my image instead of seeking for God's image that he's stamped inside of me. It is the most subtle of all temptations of idolatry. It is to think that I know God and what God will do. I have to tell you, we don't all serve the same God. And it puts us in a place to say, I've got a lot of work to do to know the character of God. Jesus' response here about, um, about God's character and, and saying, don't test the Lord as you did at Massa, has a story behind it as well in Exodus. The first story was out of Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 17 
is after they've been fed, then they start grumbling and muttering because they don't have any water to drink. And they're still ready to go back to Egypt. Sure, we've got manna from heaven. That's a great miracle. And the quail comes. We've never had so much meat. That's fantastic. But we've got no water. God. Huh? We usually have water with our meal. It is this grumbling against God's timing, God's provision, God's way, God's choices. I mean, they wandered in the desert for years. Is this really the God we want to serve? And we begin to question, well, why don't we just fashion our own God? Because there is no other God. Well, why don't we make this one God fit our image? Because God wasn't created in your image. But that's our temptation over and over again to test God and say, will you not fit into my view of what you ought to be? And the answer is no. And until we've gotten to the root of that, we can't proceed. The idolatry of forming God in our image. So in discipleship, we're invited into the wilderness of temptation to ask ourselves, how addicted am I to idolatry? My addictions are pretty strong. It is so subtle, I explain it away, I justify it, I claim everybody else is doing the same thing, and I become very satisfied with a faith It's unexamined. A life that's not subject to any kind of accountability. Hmm. But what if? What if I allow God's Spirit to fill me? God's Spirit to lead me and remained open to God's empowerment to work God's purposes through me. Maybe. That's the pathway of discipleship. I'd like to close in a time of prayer. I'd like to regularly have an opportunity for those who would like um, anointing for anything in your life's journey, particularly for healing, even if it's healing on behalf of someone else. We have scripture foundation for people who brought others to uh, Christ to be healed. Um, If that's something you desire this morning during this prayer time, in a few moments the musicians will play. I hope it might be a time of great reflection on what God might be teaching you about idolatry in your own life. I hope that's true. It may be that you want to take a moment like this to come forward. I'm going to stand right here. I, I, I want to take the mystery out of what I'm doing I could never explain the mystery of what God's doing. But all that's going to happen is in keeping with what Scripture teaches us, that if you'd like to be anointed, to be touched by God in a particular way for health renewal, um, I want you to come forward, but here's what I'd like you to do. I would like you to tell me 
how you're praying. What are you praying for? And then I simply want to agree with you in prayer. It will be a very brief prayer of blessing in accordance with what you are praying about. If you would like more prayer, I encourage you to kneel down at one of these altars, maybe in the corner prayer area, and I know there are people who would love to pray with you if you choose to do that. So don't hesitate to do that if you would like. Music will play for a little bit. We'll close in a word of prayer together as a body of believers. May God's Spirit begin to work in your life right now as we try and put aside all of those things that tempt us to worship in any other way than bowing before our Creator. In humility, God, fill us, lead us, and empower us. Let's pray together.